Well, welcome to part three of our series, Disciplers Discipling Disciples. Now, you'll get that down, I promise you, but if you missed either of the first two weeks, I would love it if you would go back and listen to the podcast. Now, really, that's important. You can also listen on the Bentree app, which is free for your phone, and the reason is that we're talking about a new direction God is taking us, and we, we feel like this leading by the Holy Spirit for us as a church family, a new vision, you need to be in the know on that. It's a pretty big change. And it's a gradual change, but you need to know why it's happening, and that's what we covered in those first two weeks. Uh, Make it a priority if you would go ahead and catch up on that, just as a favor to me. The first two weeks, we started out with the why. We sense we are called to follow Jesus in this new vision of our church. And we said, if we know our why, then we can start to know our how. Uh, Our theme scripture for this this whole series, and really for out 2020, is from Matthew chapter 4. Go ahead and look at it in your Bible or up here. Verse 17 says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he was walking along the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother, Andrew. They were casting their nets into the sea, for they were fishermen. Follow me, he told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. Two big pictures I want you to see here. One, Jesus begins calling these followers, these disciples, with this same message. And he does it every time. He says, repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, which literally means turn away from your sin and walk towards me, right? He is literally telling them, stop sinning. And why is Jesus saying, repent? Because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And we said last week, that's literally him, God in human flesh, come to save the earth. The kingdom has come near. The son of God. And the second big picture here is that this is how Jesus is calling his first disciples to follow him. It's not just a picture of turning from sin and following him. Uh, For these two brothers... Andrew and Peter, this is setting aside their life's plans. That's what he's saying. Namely, their fishing business. And then following physically after Jesus, like following him, like walking after him. But notice, it's not just a physical walk, it's a spiritual walk as well. He's going to teach them a new way of doing life. And he's asking them to be his followers, to live their life according to his plan for their life, not theirs. That's a big ask. And do you, to be really clear, remember, it's not really talking uh, uh, that like Jesus is asking a question. He just kind of tells them in this, if you look at it, he's just going, hey, follow me. It's just a statement, isn't it? This is all the disciples are called uh, to do is to follow Jesus, set aside your plans, disciples, Follow me on your way in life. Follow me in how you do life. Jesus is basically saying, I will give you a new way, a a new way of doing life. And, And oh, by the way, I'll make you fishers of people, which is odd to say. 
I love this because Jesus is going to make his disciples. He's going to construct his disciples, uh, mold, however you want to say it. He's going to construct, make these new disciples. But why? Why make them into a disciple at all? Well, Jesus said to make you fishers of people. In other words, that's the point. That's the point. Yes, we want to be like Jesus and, and we want to be remade uh, into this new creation so we can have like peace and confront struggles that we face in life. And certainly we want to go to heaven and spend eternity with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit in perfect community with this Godhead, right? We want to do that. But often Christians miss the forest for the trees. Do you know what I mean? I mean, talking about how we live life right now. They often miss the main point or the purpose of their living and breathing in this body right now on this earth. People often ask me, they say, Pastor Paul, especially younger folks, they'll say, Pastor Paul, I just really want to know God's will for my life, like who to marry, what kind of job to have, what, what is my calling, what, I, what do I need to do? And, and, I, and we can talk and, and preach for weeks on this thing, how to, to listen to the Holy Spirit through the Word of God and, and say, how do we make those decisions about God's next steps for our life? And that's a good thing. We should learn to listen to the voice of God. But we can sum it up, our purpose, and ultimately our uh, is to glorify God both now and for all eternity and to enjoy Him forever, right? We've said that many times. And the way we do that on this earth and right here and right now is to personally follow Jesus. Personally follow him, living the life of a disciple, and in doing so, teach others to do the same. Living out the gospel in both our words, and check it out, and our deeds, what we do. Today and next week, we're going to switch gears a bit and talk about the how we are going to do these new things as a church in the future. Uh, we'll still talk about why we're doing this D3 series and making this change and how we do life as a family. But I want to give you some of the talking points of how, as members of Bentry, how we're going to make this change and, and what that looks like. Now, a little instruction before we go any further. This series and today is how we usually, it's not how we usually preach. I mean, this is a special series and then Today and next week are special times inside a special series. Does that make sense? The older I get, the more I like to just take a passage of Scripture and just preach through verse by verse. Amen? I just love doing that. Uh, but today and next week, we're going to take some of the building blocks of what D3 will mean and how we do church as a bent tree family and how we're going to do it in the future. Well, just like always, I'm going to ask you for some grace Cut me some slack. Give me some patience here. As our leadership, staff, and shepherding elders work through building our systems and reviewing those, and we introduce changes both now and over the next year, we're going to need a lot of grace and patience. Uh, like we said in week one of this series, change is never easy, but you mess with someone's church or how they actually do life, and they can get especially difficult. Uh, but it can also be especially wonderful too. And at the same time, I'm going to ask you to always have your Bible open and in front of you, front and center. 
Like I said, not just on Sundays, but in your life. I want you to personally see the vision of what we are doing, how it relates to you, to your family, to the church and scripture, and I want you to be part of the journey. Well, let's dive into some how, but first, uh, would you bow your head and pray with me? Mm. Father God, we come before you now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. It is through his righteousness that we have been given through his death on the cross that we're even able to stand here now in your presence, God, and talk to you. We don't think that this is a small deal at all. Jesus, thank you for bringing us peace with the Father through your death. Holy Spirit, we just ask that you be here in power today. Move in our hearts. Change what we think. Give us a new heart, a new mind. Father, add to us what we need to know. Subtract from us what is wrong in our lives. And it is in the name of Jesus, the Most High, we pray and believe. And everyone said? Amen. 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 Well, let's start out with some definitions, shall we? Get ready to write. What does it mean to be a disciple? And when I say disciple, I mean specifically right here, a disciple of Christ Jesus. Now, if you look online, there's tons of definitions. I've read tons of books over this. Uh, lots of pastors give definitions of this, and they're all kind of similar. But what I wanted to do is have a common language for us as a bent tree family to use and how we make that change. So our definition, we're going to use for being a disciple specifically for Christ Jesus is this one. Write this down. Disciple, a person who follows Jesus, is transformed by Jesus, and joins Jesus on his mission. A person who follows Jesus is transformed by Jesus and joins Jesus on his mission. Let that sink in. The first disciples, the 12, I'm talking about that original 12, uh, who were called to repent, to leave the way of life, what they did before to follow Jesus, to follow him physically, learn his teachings, and follow his teachings spiritually as well. This is what the picture of the first four books of the New Testament are all about, what we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The picture of Jesus literally walking and teaching them, Jesus teaching his followers who he is, and teaching them how to live out their, those teachings. This is the rest of the New Testament. It is both the account of how the disciples and then the new church actually do that and then the disciples teaching what Jesus taught them. I love this picture. And then finally, the Bible concludes with a book, Revelation, that includes both a look ahead to all the future disciples uh, all disciples, both Jesus' disciples, but listen, you can be a disciple of other things, right? It looks forward to all the disciples and heaven or hell, reward or torment. Well, let me point out what may be obvious, but maybe not. When we just say a disciple, here's what I mean. Everyone is a disciple of someone or something. Everyone is a disciple of someone or something. Maybe you're thinking, well, not me. I, I'm not a disciple of anyone. 
Like I live my life for me. I do what makes me happy. I'm a captain of my ship. I'm the captain of my destiny, right? Is that right? Is that right? Are you sure about that? Because aren't you just following the most basic thing you've always been told the world is selling you right now? Like every ad on YouTube, right? Every ad on television that says the truth, it is within you. You do what makes you happy. You only live once, right? Make it count. Get the bucket list completed on your bucket list. You only live once. Make it count. It's, it's the theme of every single Disney movie ever made. The truth is within you. Find it and you'll be happy. Right? But think about it. It's not just that. There's a ton of disciples leading other ways of life that they think is best. And not to hammer anybody, but... There's climate change disciples. There's gun rights disciples. There's anti-gun rights disciples. There's workout disciples. There's CrossFit disciples that got huge arms, right? There's workout disciples. There's health food disciples. There's no gluten disciples. There's, uh, there are art disciples. Like, and I'm a music disciple. I like love music. There are travel disciples. I just want to travel. There's capitalist disciples. There are socialist disciples. There's a way of thinking and doing life for almost anything under the sun. And listen, it's not that everything is bad. Some of you are going, well, I hate gluten. You know, I'm not knocking that. What, what I'm saying is anything can become bad if we base our life on that thing of our purpose rather than uh, our decision-making on the way of life, uh, living it for Jesus. Does that make sense? Think of it this way. A true disciple makes other disciples. A true disciple makes other disciples. I'm not just talking about Christians. I'm talking about anyone that goes for Christians or any belief system. You really are a disciple if you try not to only get someone uh, to try out a belief system, but you do life with them in such a way that it teaches them how to do life this new way. Does that make sense to you? If you like Apple products, you, you try to get those around you to use Apple products. And, and if you, you like a movie or a restaurant, you, you tell people why they should go themselves, like you tell them your personal experience with them, uh, you try to get them to go. If you're a Toyota guy, you try to extol the virtues of Toyota to your friends until that is you're stuck on the side of a mountain in a snowstorm and a Jeep comes and rescues you, Right? <laughs> There are harmless ways like that to make disciples of a brand and to be fun. It's just saying, I like this thing, maybe you would like it too. But what we're talking about is something much deeper. Making your life's operating system about Jesus and getting other people not only to hear the gospel and to respond in saving faith, but listen, to teach them how to do life as a Christian, as a Christ follower. It might help to think uh, about a closely related term. Uh, write this down, discipleship, right? It's closely related. A more mature discipler teaching other disciples how to biblically live for Jesus in their everyday lives. 
how to biblically live for Jesus in their everyday lives. Discipleship is a relational process for sanctification. Discipleship is a relational process for sanctification. In other words, if there's justification, that's how we are saved. Sanctification is how we grow more like Jesus. Relational ways of doing that, that's what disciple is. Well, one of our shepherding elders, uh, Eric, used a football analogy for Super Bowl Sunday. is great. Let me, let me give you a football analogy. Is that okay? Okay. Think of a freshman boy who joins a high school football team. He thinks he knows everything about football because he's watched it with his dad since he's a little kid, right? He thinks he knows what football is all about, but he's never played a game. He's a fan, but he's never played. The coaches for the high school team begin to teach the young player the point of the game. He goes, I know the point of the game. I know what it means to win by scoring more points than the other team before the clock expires. But they teach him the fundamentals, how to block, how to tackle, how to throw and catch the ball. They tell him stories of the hard work it's going to take. If you want to be a true football player, they say it's going to take some serious sacrifice, uh, some blood, sweat, and tears, long hours of practice, mental and skills training. The coaches introduce this new player to other players at his skill level and they start to practice his teammates. The coaches are going to introduce him then to some upperclassmen, those who have played previous seasons, and they're going to teach him what they know. The young player starts to practice with the team over and over. He learns how to play his position as a running back, right? He learns how to play that, but not only that, he learns what the other positions on the team does, even if he doesn't play them. He learns a very important message that if he doesn't follow exactly the play set up and those big linemen on the front don't block for him, that the other team gets to him pretty quick and he gets knocked down. He even learns the traditions of the team, the history, why we do this chant right before we go on the field. The coaches have this young player start to watch videos of other teams so that he will be ready and to know what to expect when the enemy, the other team, comes out him. Well, every day, this player gets up faithfully long before school practices his muscles are tired then after school he practices until late finally game day comes around and the first game that this young man begins to understand the depth of what it is to play the game he's nervous these other guys hit much harder than in practice because practice is, is never as real as the the uh, as the real game. And win, lose, or draw, the coaches are going to take this first game and they're going to use the experience this player has and, and he's, they're going to build the ability of the team. Well, let's think about this as far as discipleship goes. How is the young player discipled? Is it by the head coach? Yes. Is it by the other coaches on the staff? Absolutely. How about the young player being discipled by other players, upperclassmen? Yes. I, I want you to notice something important. Discipleship happened in all those cases in this analogy. Some of those discipleship relationships are formal, like the coaches. 
Some of them are informal, like other players going, hey, let me show you how I do this to get away from the, uh, the guys or to block or to catch. And get this, sometimes the young player will even learn more from another player than they do from the formal coaching relationship. Both the coaches and the other players are discipling this young man. Now, analogies can help us picture the truth in a relationship, but the analogies break down if you push them too hard. That's true of any analogy. But let me point out one other truth with this analogy. The other players that poured into this young freshman football player, did it help them as well to disciple that young player? You bet it did. In fact, I would argue that there might be evidence that suggests a person really starts to learn when they have to teach it to someone else. They, they, they internalize that truth. Okay, change the story. Make it the body of Christ, the church. It's not an analogy anymore. This is game day. This is the real thing. This is eternity in the balance. This is, uh, this is the real game and your opponent is Satan. And listen, Satan does not fight fair. Do you remember in, in Pirates of the Caribbean, the first one, when she goes to the, the main pirate, she goes, hey, that's not fair. And he goes, pirate? <laughs> Some of you are saying like, well, Satan doesn't fight fair. What were you thinking he was going to do? You know? You go, I didn't expect the attack to come that way. The church, we all uh, have different gifts. And God-given abilities, God-given abilities, a new player, a new Christian comes in. This is the picture I want us to look at. They come in, they get saved, and according to Matthew 28, what are we, the church, supposed to do as a team, uh, as a church? Look at it, verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. This is our plan. This is our strategy. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, this is all about what we are called to do as the body of Christ, as the church. What are the action words here? Look at them in your Bible, underline those. There's five of them, so you're going to want to kind of do the fingers one at a time. Go, do them with me. Go, make baptize, teach, remember. Go, make, baptize, teach, remember. Look at my hand. Look up here. It's all five. Write this down. Write this down. Go means to engage with people in our lives. Engage. Go outside these walls. God puts people in our sphere of influence on purpose. No one is there by accident. We are to engage those people with the gospel, to be ready to share uh, 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 with our words, but we always share with our, our actions. We should be ready to give a defense with our words of why we believe, why our life looks different, why we follow Jesus and when they believe or they start to say, what is that? Here's the next thing. Make. Begin a long-term discipleship process. Begin a long-term discipleship process. 
You do your best to get that person into regular contact with the church family. Listen, one-on-one discipleship is great. Studying the Bible in a small group, discipleship group is even better. Bible studies, yes, and even we try to get them involved in Sunday morning worship, but that doesn't have to start even right away when they don't know the Lord. But how do, how do you do that? This is, a, this is a team sport, right? You are not alone. You are part of a family. There's all of us, but you might be the only contact for a person at first. So listen to me. Your job is to get them connected. But then, what is the role of the church family? All of us together. Well, think of the informal discipleship and the formal discipleship. Kind of like the coaching and player metaphor. Both are critical, but here's the goal. Teach. Show how the teaching of Jesus in the Bible is lived out in the way we do life. Show how the teaching of Jesus in the Bible is lived out in the way we do life. That means every day, as you do life with someone, in your sphere, the grind of life, the ups and downs, the joys and the sorrows of life. It's why we do church together as a community as well. The people of God put... uh, The people, I'm sorry, the people God puts into your sphere, they watch you like a hawk. They want to see how you handle these struggles in life and the joys in life. They they watch you in the mundane. They want to see how you spend your money, how you spend your time, how you celebrate, how you handle loss. They will listen to what you know but they will key on what you do. That is why it is so important if you're going to disciple others around you informally or formally, you must actually do what you say you're going to do. Then the last of those five commands is remember. Now remember what? He says, remember that I'm always with you, but there's something else I want you to do. Jesus is talking about his disciples. This is his command. He says this, Remember, Christ in, is in us and we are in Christ. Christ is in us and we are in Christ. Jesus is saying, remember who you are. Remember what the point of your life is about. Remember what I said and remember I am with you to the very end. So when you close your eyes of death, the next thing you will see, you will be in the presence of Jesus. That's what scripture says. Or when he returns to take us all home. He says, I am in you and you are in me. In fact, let's look at John 14 just for a second. Flip over. It's not very far. John 14, verse 18. Jesus is talking to his disciples right before his crucifixion. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. In a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, and I am in you. You see it there? The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me, 
and the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, I also will love him and will reveal myself to him. Whew. So what's the goal? How do we know if this thing is working? If D3, disciplers, discipling disciples, what are we seeing and saying is D3 is that you want Christians with some maturity to begin to pour into those around them, both formally and informally. They would be the disciplers. They would disciple. Uh, they would exhibit discipleship. That's what we just talked about. Uh, those around them that are a little bit less further along than they are. Does that make sense? So what's the goal? That the disciple, as they hit certain levels of maturity, they would in turn start to disciple those around them. Do you see how this works? Here's the purpose of D3. Number one, all believers in the church family grow in spiritual maturity. All believers in the church family grow in spiritual maturity. We'll talk about the stages of spiritual maturity next week. You're going to love it. It may be a little painful, though. It's not just that you keep growing in your knowledge and your head gets big. You should grow in your knowledge, and I hope you will. But think back to the football player analogy. If he learns the game from practice and films and people telling him what the game is like, but if he never plays the game himself, what will he know? Not much. Spiritual maturity is a child growing up into an adult, spiritually speaking. Obviously, not all people in their 20s make the best decisions about life. If you're in your 20s, sorry about that. They're to not totally mature. They haven't had all the same things you or I have. But they're getting there. On the other hand, I know dudes that are in their 40s that are less mature adults than some 20-year-olds, and I'm not talking spiritual, I'm just talking about life, right? The same idea is true for spiritual maturity. Just because you've been a Christian for 40 years does not mean you have reached spiritual maturity. And just because you haven't been a Christian very long does not mean that you are not becoming spiritually mature. We're going to press on that next week. Here's the second goal of D3 and the change we're talking about. Individual members beginning to produce spiritual fruit. Individual members begin to produce spiritual fruit. The fruit of the Spirit or Think of it as the results of maturity begin to show, just like the freshman football player, his ability. This is good stuff the Spirit gives us. People start to become more loving. They start to become more caring about those people. They become more joyful. Um, believers start to develop a peace. And check this out. That peace shows even and especially when they're in the middle of a rough, difficult time. People start being more loving, caring, joyous, all of that. Members are more patient with their kids, family, and friends. And there's this unmistakable level of kindness that starts to grow. There's a self-control that people that didn't used to have any self-control 
I mean, this is where addictions start to break and good habits start to form. Check this out. Although life for a real Christian can become quite difficult because you are living for the king. Like they're coming after you. The opponent's coming after you. Spiritual attacks. Life becomes so much better in that you have these attributes of Christ Jesus that start to develop in you. You can face the harder stuff because you are becoming more like Jesus. We'll talk more about this next week and throughout the year. But one of the things I want you to see here will help you track your spiritual growth. Like you personally track it. And we'll help you as a church. I don't know about you, but sometimes I'm like, I get home and I go, like, am I any more mature than I was last year? Have I grown any? Right? So we track that stuff. We'll talk about growth marks, spiritual uh, mile markers, if you will, that we can measure against. The same thing for everybody. And that brings up number three. Individual members begin to produce spiritual gifts. And you go, Paul, you just said this one. No, look. Individual members begin to produce spiritual gifts. Once maturity just even begins to happen to occur in a believer's life, the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit, begins to give each Christian a spiritual gift or two. The gifts of teaching, spiritual gifts of preaching. Giving, yep, that's a spiritual gift. How about administration? Yes, spiritual leadership, the gift of mercy, exhortation, just to name a few. Even serving, even encouragement or exhortation, gifts of healing, of wisdom. And as people start to function in all these different gifts, both evangelism and discipleship begin to grow people. They start to get what they're supposed to do in the church. You go, like, I see a need in the church and I think I might be able to fill it, but then you have this self-doubt. That brings up number four. The purpose is the church body begins to function at a higher level of effectiveness. At a higher level of effectiveness. This is when the church begins to really flex its muscle, right? What I'm saying is that the sum of the parts of the church are greater than the number of people represented. In other words, the effectiveness is not just... um, What it used to be, it's gone way up. When they begin to function in their spiritual gifts, it's like the old ways, two plus two equals four people. But now you start to go, two people plus two people equal the spiritual benefit of 20 or 30 or 60 or 100 times. Not only in relationships in the church, but in the the community around them. And that brings up number five. The church body begins to grow exponentially. The church body begins to grow exponentially. And some of you just went, ha ha, I knew it. It was all about numbers. Like that's the point. Listen to me. Spiritual growth in individuals can lead to growth of the total number of people. Listen, listen. Saved 
and the size of the church as well. Exponential growth means more growth produces faster growth and faster growth produces more growth and it becomes like this tidal wave of believers and I'm not just talking about growing our location here but planting new independent churches all over Colorado and listen, some of you may be called to go to different states or even other countries. Over the years, I've gotten some pushback from other pastors. I think they mean well. Like They go, well, our goal is not more people, but the kind of growth. Our, our goal is spiritual growth. Kind of a quality versus quantity idea. And I go, like those, there are pastors that have argued, why even count people in attendance at church? And my answer has always been, because people count. Each number is a real story that Jesus died to save them. Are you with me? That's why we count. Now here's why discipleship is so very important. Because of a term I want you to have down pat. Here it is. Relationship evangelism. Relationship evangelism. Remember last week when I told you that one of the models for church growth over the last 30 years has been to attract people to the church? Relational evangelism is the thing you must have with this. Attractional church. The idea is not bad in and of itself. It can attract people to the church. Then the professional Christians, that's the idea, uh, is uh, uh, the wrong idea. Then if you attract people, then the professional Christians like Paul will, will present the gospel, will teach them. They'll show them how to become a Christian, like a youth pastor, another pastor, uh, about the gospel. And maybe they will get saved. Maybe they'll start to grow in their church. And, and yes, that works at least somewhat, but it's a low-yield system. Yes, there's a lot of movement and a lot of action that goes on, uh, but the, the spiritual rate of return is just not that great. Like with people becoming more like Christ and how they live, there's just not a lot of that. There's, there's not much spiritual fruit or spiritual gifts coming out. People just kind of get stalled in their spiritual maturity. But listen, with relationship evangelism, it's not just the pastor or the staff that shares the gospel and teaches people. It's everyone in the church. And check this out. Living the life and sharing it in those spheres of influence you have. Work, school, home. Like you can sit and listen to me preach. And I hope you do. But you do that because I'm your pastor and you love me. You go, well, he's got some idiosyncrasies, but that's Paul and we love him, right? You may call them different things, but right? You say, I, I go. But someone that comes from the outside, they don't know me. It takes time for them to hear me and get to know me. And I don't have a lot of social capital with them. Why? Because I don't know them. Unless it's a friend of mine, right? I just don't have a lot of social capital with a stranger. But you do. With relationship evangelism, the social capital, 
the relationship is already there with you. You already do life with them in the sphere you do life with them. They know you. And if you have Jesus in you, they start to trust you. Do you see the problem with just doing attraction, the attractional model by itself? The attractional model, you have to grow the church very large and have a relatively small amount of spiritual growth. you got to have it way large just to get a little bit of spiritual growth, right, in people's lives. And it costs tons of money to hire large staff to build large buildings and run large programs. And I personally know of churches, uh, more than one, that have staff, over 500 staff members to run a giant church of 20,000 plus people. Now those are huge numbers, but what is the spiritual growth of both individuals and the church body of that church? This is the surprising thing. I found out about 12 years ago, well, a little longer than that now, a study that I was a part of and the church I was a part of as well, but big churches saw firsthand, it showed out of those churches, like huge churches like that, most of the people were stalled out in their spiritual growth, had not grown in years, and had become frustrated with their lack of spiritual growth. Spiritual growth was almost non-existent in these studies. Now, I don't mean to lump all churches together. And not all big churches or even most are bad. I'm not saying that. But they do present a particular problem in if they're run the wrong way. You see, the problem starts to happen that the best thing and the worst thing about giant church is the same thing. You know what it is? A person could come and check out a giant church and kind of hide and see if it fits them. That's a great thing. They can just kind of blend into the crowd and there's no risk. They don't have, if they don't like it, they don't have to go back. No loss. No one knows. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, the bad part is people stay that way and it becomes consumer driven. That's what causes that. Because what happens is that everyone begins to lean on one pastor or one system in a church to teach them everything they need to know and everything their family needs to go in one 30-minute sermon. And everybody at Bentry laughed. But they don't, and they become frustrated. There's not much discipleship going on in that situation. And it serves, and they serve on a team or in a small group or a Bible study. Maybe they'll grow that way a little bit. Praise God that happens. But it's fairly small percentage of people in the church that serve and grow. What would it be like? What would it be like if everyone in this church, I'm talking Bentry Church, leaned into discipleship and started to grow that way? And then they hit a level of spiritual maturity, listen, that they would help other people grow around them. I'm not just talking about those in the church family. I am talking about those, but not just those, the people in their sphere of influence. I'm talking about a bent tree person reaching spiritual maturity and beginning to reach those in the communities where they live, their family members, their school, their neighborhood. Suddenly, it's not about us trying to attract people to church. Then people are starting to come because they see something different in you. In the church members, they do life with every week. They go, I want some of that. And so they start to seek where they get that. They see a change in you. 
then it's not just trying to attract people with my preaching or, or, or music or youth or relationship with someone. It's relationship with you that attracts them. Then they get turned on to the rest of the church in relationship. Let me close with a couple of thoughts. It can seem like I'm hammering big churches, and I certainly don't mean to. Small churches can be guilty of the same problems of big church. People stalled in their spiritual growth and dissatisfied. And what's worse, in many cases, many times in a small church, you have the added problems of gossip, of church politics, and power-hungry people kind of trying to wrestle control of the church. I mean, pastors of small churches do you know why they tend to leave over and over? If you've ever been a part of church, they last about 18 months because they're just so either frustrated from the lack of change or burned out or both. So it's not a large church problem only. Listen to me. It's a church problem. So let me offer you an apology. You go, Paul, what do you mean? Sometimes I've looked as if Back over the last 10 years, I've been guilty of trying to make you into a big church by you becoming an attractional church. Now, the good news is that we've always, since day one, taught solid truth from the Bible. Amen? That's always been the case. And by God's grace, it will always be the case until Christ returns. But my apology is based on this. We did not put discipleship in its proper place of importance. And I'm sorry. That's on me. There's nothing wrong with being a church that attracts people because they do things well. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I like that we're a welcoming place. I like that a guest services team makes this place welcoming, that people decorate it and, and do cool graphics and that the band is good and there's this relaxed, welcoming environment and this wonderful youth program. And um, Man, all that stuff is good. Don't quit doing that. It's all good unless you don't have a process of people getting discipled in discipleship groups, small groups, one-on-one -on -one relationships, What's good at Bentry is we've always had this level, at least some level of small groups and discipleship going on. But what's bad, and I apologize for, is that it's not been a high priority. But from now on, as long as I'm the senior pastor, it will be. And I'm not going anywhere. Next week, we'll talk more about the how of the change, but we're not ready to roll out all the details uh, we are working hard on it as leaders. There's teams. Be patient with us and give us a lot of grace and some slack. You know what I mean? As we celebrate our 10th anniversary coming up in March, we'll be rolling out what our new ways of doing things will be looking like gradually. Changing one system after another. This change with D3 will be gradual, but make no mistake, it will change. And listen, I don't expect anyone to leave Bentry Church because the changes that you'll see here this year. But we might frustrate you and you might be tempted to leave. I'm saying, I would ask for your patience and your help. We need you more than ever. I mean, you and you and you and you and you and you. We need your help in your giving like money. Your attendance each week, unless you're, you're sick or out of town, right? We need your prayer. We need your service. 
Pray that Luke 10.2 prayer. Remember we talked about? Pray that prayer of God. I, I see at my work a sea of lost people. Hey God, there's, there's very few workers. Would you send workers? Pray that. Could you pray that? That Luke 10.2 prayer that God send workers into the harvest. That's my prayer. Would you pray with me? Father, as I think of this week and sorry about that. (laughs) We're back on the line, God. God, as I think about this week, on January 31st, it was 10 years ago that I left my position as a pastor and began to walk with many in this room towards the goal of planting a church. And then March 21st of 2010, we planted that church, God. And I'm just humbled and thankful you uh, led us to do that. God, it was scary at the time. (laughs) Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for each and every person this church has ever ministered to. God, but I pray that you would be faithful once again as we are called to this new level of discipleship. God, would you show us how to be faithful, what we actually need to do as we follow you, not just in our words, but God, in our deeds. As you continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed, A couple of weeks ago, I want you to listen. We talked about how a disciple back in Jesus' day would physically walk close to their teacher, the rabbi. Like the rabbi, the teacher would teach them as they walked along. Do you remember that? Literally, a student would grow a little bit with each step he took. For those of you who have been Christ followers for a long time, I wanted to get, ask you a question, to get you to ask yourself a question. Like, I think you're following Jesus. But I want you to ask, what's my next step in my discipleship of following Jesus? What is Jesus teaching me as I walk behind the Master? And here's the thing I'm asking. If you've got some level of spiritual maturity, would you consider beginning to pour into those people, even informally, discipleship? Like an upperclassman on the football team telling the freshman players, this is how I do it, maybe it'll work for you. For some of you, you may be totally mature and yet unplugged from discipleship, like you just have forgotten that. Ask the rabbi, ask Jesus, is this the time, this D3 process, when I'm supposed to step up into some level of leadership, maybe a a formal discipleship kind of a deal, like a coach 
And listen, I, I don't know who that is. I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then some of you, your spiritual infants, and I'm not trying to hurt your feelings, or you're just like frustrated and, and you go, I, I want some spiritual maturity, but I don't know what to do. Like, you just don't know. Here's the thing. Would you just commit today to, to being discipled by... God, as I think about this week, On January 31st, it was 10 years ago that I left my position as a pastor and began to walk with many in this room towards the goal of planting a church. And then March 21st of 2010, we planted that church, God. And I'm just humbled and thankful you uh, led us to do that. God, it was scary at the time. <laughs> Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for each and every person this church has ever ministered to. God, but I pray that you would be faithful once again as we are called to this new level of discipleship. God, would you show us how to be faithful, what we actually need to do as we follow you, not just in our words, but God, in our deeds. As you continue to pray with your head bowed and your eyes closed. A couple of weeks ago, I want you to listen. We talked about how a disciple back in Jesus' day would physically walk close to their teacher, the rabbi. Like the rabbi, the teacher would teach them as they walked along. Do you remember that? Literally, a student would grow a little bit with each step he took. For those of you who have been Christ followers for a long time, I wanted to get, ask you a question, to get you to ask yourself a question. Like, I think you're following Jesus. But I want you to ask, what's my next step in my discipleship of following Jesus? What is Jesus teaching me as I walk behind the master? And here's the thing I'm asking. If you've got some level of spiritual maturity, would you consider beginning to pour into those people, even informally, discipleship? Like an upperclassman on the football team telling the freshman players, this is how I do it. Maybe it'll work for you. For some of you, you may be totally mature and yet unplugged from discipleship. Like you just have forgotten that. Ask the rabbi, ask Jesus, is this the time, this D3 process, when I'm supposed to step up into some level of leadership, maybe a, a formal discipleship kind of a deal, like a coach? And listen, I, I don't know who that is. I'm, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit speak to you. And then some of you, your spiritual infants, and I'm not trying to hurt your feelings or you're just like frustrated and, 
and, and you go, I, I want some spiritual maturity, but I don't know what to do. Like, you just don't know. Here's the thing. Would you just commit today to, to being discipled by other people so that you would grow? And here's the thing. After you have attained some maturity, maybe you can start then pouring into other people. So pray that right now. Just, Jesus, what's my next step? How do I follow you? Well, let's end that prayer with this. Jesus, we want to be the church you have called us to be. Jesus, I apologize that I've not made discipleship a high priority and a central focus. God, help us to be attractional and bring people in and like do stuff well, but God, help us to see the spiritual need of not just those in the church, those, but those people in our lives that you want to save through us. It's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen.